recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 16th, 2013. Tonight, we will present Explaining to Seedline, Part 7, Pragmatic Genesis. But this is really not more, more of a discussion tonight than it will be a presentation, I believe. Last week, or, or should I say the week before last, we discussed at great length Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. We demonstrated from academic sources that there are, um, well, well, there are scholars, mainstream scholars even, who admit that the Hebrew of Genesis 4, 1 is demonstrably corrupt in its grammatical construction that is a problem with the verse. And hand in hand with that, we, we presented certain Aramaic targums and other scriptures which show that early, um, we can't call them Christians, but that early people of the faith, whether it be Judaism at, at the time, which even the apostles in Christ were raised in, and they weren't necessarily Edomite Jews, or, or whether they were early Christians, they, they attempted to fill in what they thought were the blanks of Genesis 4.1. They knew that something was wrong with the verse as it stands. Now, now I wouldn't accept their filling in the blanks as canonical, but it does show that we can't simply accept that verse on its face. Last week, we demonstrated through nine witnesses that indeed Cain was not the son of Adam. In spite of the text of Genesis 4.1 as we have it in our Bibles today, Genesis 4.1 has no second witness. Some of these nine witnesses are interdependent upon one another or upon other circumstances of Scripture. However, we shall briefly enumerate them here. First, neither Cain nor his descendants are included in the book of the generations of Adam, which begins at Genesis 5.1. Bill, can I just interject for one second? Uh -oh. I, I just wanted to reinforce what you said. Not only does Genesis 4.1 not have a second witness, it has contrary witnesses, multiple contrary well, witnesses. That, that's these nine items that I'm listing, right? right? The second is that Seth was a replacement for Abel. Cain was overlooked. He wasn't even in the running. The third was that Enoch was seventh from Adam, as enumerated by the Apostle Jude, and therefore only Abel, Seth being a replacement for Abel, could be included in the counting, and Cain must be rejected. Otherwise, Cain must be counted and Abel skipped over. However, Seth was a replacement for Abel. Noah was the eighth preacher of righteousness, helping to establish the nature of the Melchizedek priesthood, which Cain had intentions of usurping. Next, by sacrificing to Yahweh, Abel was, Abel was competing with Cain for that office, and he prevailed, so Cain killed him. Cain, and, and we'll see further substantiation for that in this program tonight. Next, Cain is of the wicked one, according to the Apostle John, contrasted in 1 John chapter 3 to those, whom, to those to whom sin would not be imputed because their seed is in them. Therefore, Cain must be a bastard. Next, 
certain opponents of Christ were said to be of the race of Cain, Luke chapter 11. So we see that Cain, his descendants certainly exist in the time of Christ in Judea. Next, those same opponents of Christ had an origin distinguished from that of Christ, who said, my father is not your father, basically, and you're of your father the devil, John chapter 8. And next, according to Matthew chapter 13, this intrusion happened at the beginning of the world and therefore began with Cain, tying back into John chapter 8, where Christ tells them that their father was a murderer from the beginning. If Cain and Abel had a common father, if Cain and Seth had a common father, Christ wouldn't have been able to tell them that his father was not their father. It's that simple. Do you have anything to add? Now, that's just a recap of what well, we presented last week. The evangelicals must necessarily believe then that Adam is the wicked one because Cain was of from the wicked one. And if they believe Cain is the son of Adam, then Adam must be the wicked one. Well, well right. That, that, they, that they don't understand Scripture and... Which, and well, when when you toy with, with with scripture and you don't understand it, it, it demonstrates that you're led in. Well, when you make one error, it it leads you into other errors, and and it never ends. You end up in a chain of errors and and misinterpretations of scripture. Right. And you have to. You you end up. What you end up doing is rejecting the value of words at their face. You end up twisting the words of Christ in order to support your errors. Right, and additionally, since Adam was made in the image of God, if you believe that Cain is of the wicked one, Adam, then Adam being made in the image of God, God must be wicked as well. Well, well, right. It it, it just leads into other problems. That that's right. So one error compounds on itself, and before you know it, it's a domino effect. You have an avalanche of errors. Absolutely. It's just like a mathematical formula, right? And, and you make one error in it somewhere, and the whole thing unravels in the end. Right. And, and, and if you don't recognize the one error that you made and try to correct for it in other places, you end up with more problems. Right. You make an error at the beginning in an equation, you carry it through the, every other part of the equation, and your final output is garbage. Right. Is wrong. And, and your bridge falls down. Here we will, we, we will, this isn't really meant to be a Genesis commentary. It's only meant to be an exposition of what, well, you know, it's hard to say two seed line beliefs because what we know is two seed line might be different when somebody speaks to me. It might be different when somebody speaks even to Clifton, and, and we, we agree 99% of the time, and we've worked together for, for 15 years maybe. So, so it, it, it's definitely different when we, um, when we resort to even to Compare, who, who Clifton and I both um, admit we, we owe a great debt to the, to the men that preceded us in, in this because we, we learned from them, and that's how we got our start, right? And, and Wesley Swift, who, who I have many more differences with than I have with Compare. So, so it, that, that's the way it is. It, it, you build on, on what another man has, has laid, that, that foundation. 
we try to build on the foundation of Christ and, and make sure it's a solid foundation. So we have to what we have to kick to the curb some of the recognized errors of, of our um of our predecessors. That's the way it is. But but two seed line beliefs uh, I mean, they are all over the map. There's some people that still think Satan's in heaven, that, that, that a, um, a demonic spirit being came down from, from the clouds and seduced Eve. It, it's this, there's a whole lot of crazy beliefs, and, and that's why I believe that what I'm presenting here and, and what you're assisting me with presenting it is pragmatic genesis. It's practical genesis. It, it's a view of genesis through the lens of the New Testament and the words of the apostles in Christ, and that's the way we should look at Genesis. That's the practical way for Christians to look at Genesis rather than try to interpret Genesis apart from the words of Christ in the New Testament where we're going to come up with all sorts of harebrained beliefs, and, and it happens over and over again. It, it's the, the track record of, of Christian writing the last hundred years is the proof of the pudding. If you don't interpret the, the, the book of Genesis through the words of Christ, who came to reveal things kept secret since the foundation of the world, well, well then you're basically rejecting the words of Christ. Right. So, you know. Well, we have to look at Genesis as Christians. We have to look at Genesis the way that the apostles and the way that our Redeemer understood Genesis. And and that comes first. And as you were saying about these harebrained schemes, you know, be that as it may, if someone believes that some evil demonic spirit came down and impregnated Eve, that may not be schism-worthy in and of itself, but it may lead to harebrained crackpot ideas that might be schism-worthy. Well, well it, right, absolutely. And and I've said in, in, the, um, in the past that it doesn't matter where you want to think Satan fell from. Revelation chapter 12 says that there was a rebellion in heaven and, and that a third of the angels were thrown and, and with, with the leader of that rebellion was thrown out of heaven. And that's fine. Let's believe Revelation 12 on its face, uh, on its face because they are the words of our Redeemer. However, what do you want to perceive heaven to be really doesn't matter. And, and heaven could simply be, as it is in Revelation chapter 6 and, and many other chapters of Scripture, heaven is the establishment of God's government on earth. It, it's, a, it, it's a government of man and, and a society of man in harmony with God. And, and, and that's one way that the Scripture treats heaven, and that's allegorical. Another way is to imagine that the demons or, or that the angels fell from space to earth. And, and I mean, if you want to believe that, that's fine. We can't prove it either way. It doesn't matter which of the two you would rather believe, or, or even if they came from another dimension or, or whatever. It doesn't matter which of those things you want to believe. What we have to believe is what the Bible tells us, that Satan is no longer in heaven, his place is no longer in heaven, that these Satans are now the tree of the knowledge of good and evil who were in the garden. A race of beings in the garden as soon as Adam was put there. That's what we should all believe and agree on because that's what the scripture says. 
Right. And, and, and it don't matter where you want to think Satan fell from, whether you want to take that allegorically, literally. We should not beat each other up over those things. Now, the issue becomes, though, if somebody wants to... Di- I'm sorry. I was just saying the issue becomes if someone wants to start differentiating and they claim that Satan or the serpent or the deceiver sired the, the Jews, the Edomites, the Canaanites, but God made all the other races, so it's only the Canaanites we have a problem with and we're to avoid them, but we can embrace the other races. Well, well Genesis, you know, Genesis in Genesis... Yahweh God does not take credit for the creation of other races of man. He only takes credit for the creation of the Adamic race of man, the white race. And, and we could demonstrate that the Adamic race is indeed the white race when we get to Genesis chapter 10, which is where the historical narrative and, and the, the, the historically verifiable narrative of, of Scripture begins. It begins with Genesis chapter 10. We can look back in the records of our race and see that all of those nations, which can certainly be identified in archaeology and in history, were all white nations. So the race of Adamic man has to be white people. Now I understand that some of those nations are no longer white, but we can also look back into our historic records and into our scripture to see why they're no longer white. And, and, and those records are all there. They're, the, the classics and the archaeology and, and the scripture is all there for the reading. The, the, um, the Adamic race is the white race and the other races are not explicitly created in Genesis and to understand where they came from, we have to read the parables and the words of the apostles in Christ and and the Hebrew prophets in relation to to eschatological scripture, to to end times prophecy, where in the end, the only race standing is is the children of Israel. And, And the Adamic race is the only race that's resurrected. So where do the other races come from? And and if we look, what we find that they must be, they must be that these beings, according to the Apostle Jude, and we demonstrated this in, in the third segment of this presentation of this series, we demonstrated this from the Apostle Jude, and, and also it can be demonstrated from 2 Peter in his epistle, the other races are, are those infiltrators of old, they're spots in our feasts of charity. They're clouds without water, and they're angels chained in darkness awaiting their day of judgment. The other races have to be derived from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right, but ultimately their specific origin is largely irrelevant since we know their final destination, their tares. Well, well, absolutely. There's only two kinds of fish in the net. The the the, the net, and 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 we can start there with Matthew chapter 13. I think it starts in 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 verse 48. The parable of the net. The kingdom of heaven is like a net when cast in the sea, pulls up every kind of fish, and and the good kind is stored in vessels, and and the bad kind is thrown into the fire. We know who the sheep are, and only the children of Israel are the sheep. 
All other peoples, therefore, have to be goats. Paul says, if you're not chastised, then you're bastards and not sons. There's no third choice. You can't say, well, I'm not a bastard, I'm a Chinaman. Well, where are Chinamen in Scripture? You're either a son or a bastard. You're either a sheep or a goat. You're either a wheat or a tare. You're either a good fish or a bad fish. Christ identified kinds. The word is genos. Christ identified kinds of fish as bad. When you look back at the creation account, Yahweh did not create anything that was bad. Everything he created was good. Yahshua Christ being Yahweh manifest in the flesh, he would not, Yahweh does not change. If he created it, it's not bad. But there's only two kinds of trees. There's bad trees and there's good trees, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit, and a good tree can't produce bad fruit. Don't tell me there's any crossing over. If you're a goat, you're not going over there on the right with the sheep. If you're a sheep, you don't have a choice in the matter. You're not going over there on the left with the goats. Well, when I was a kid, I, I, I used to like to say, kill them all, they're already sorted out. I didn't know what the hell I was saying, but, but <laughs> I realized that somehow I was right. I, I was right by accident, but <laughs> somehow I was right. Well, you know, if you plant an apple tree, you're not going to have tobacco growing. Well, well absolutely. So, so well, well that's, an, that, that's an impromptu recap of things that we spoke about in, in the third portion of this series, in the third segment of this series, now I would like to start with um, that, this, that this isn't really meant to be a commentary on Genesis, but something should just be discussed at least in some degree, and, and we should start with Genesis 4 6. All right. I, I mean, I'll read it if you want me to. And, and, and your yeah, right. That's why it's in there. All right. And Yahweh, <laughs> and Yahweh said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire. This is the King James Version. We're going to discuss this momentarily. And thou shalt rule over him. Why would Yahweh God tell Cain that he would be accepted if he did well? And I would say that Yahweh always challenged, and, and he did this over and over again, walking the earth, Yahshua Christ always challenges his enemies to do good. And they can. And that begins with Cain. And they can. These challenges should be an example to God's children. Because God's enemies, who are, who are his enemies, ostensibly because of one reason, because they have corruptions. They are corruptions of his creation. They cannot possibly do good. Well, Cain challenged to do good and immediately went out and killed his brother. I'd like to just quote Jeremiah 13:23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? 
Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Therefore will I scatter them as the stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. Right. And, and let me clarify something real quick. The original Ethiopians were Cushites and they were white. But I believe that that statement in Jeremiah, the word of Yahweh, is a multidimensional statement. Because the leopard being spotted is sort of like two different colors, right? right? The Ethiopians were white until about the 8th century B.C., and, and they had already probably been doing some race mixing. It's evident that the southern Egyptians and, and the Egyptian noble houses had been doing some race mixing with the Nubians, and so were the Ethiopians, but they started out white, and they ended up leopards because the Nubians overran Ethiopia by the, eighth, by the end of the 8th century B.C. Jeremiah wrote towards the end of the 7th century B.C. The Ethiopians were already a bastard race, and they couldn't change the color of their skin. And, and, and the leopard can't change his spots, and, and I believe that's a multidimensional statement because it indicates to us that the Ethiopians, once white, were now sort of like re- leopards. They were like multicolored. Hmm. They were bastards. The, the um, sin lieth at the door. Because Cain, being a bastard, could not possibly keep himself from evil. The Pharisees and Sadducees did not go out to John the Baptist so that they could be baptized. They went out to John the Baptist to see why he was baptizing. And Luke tells us that. He doesn't tell us that in Luke 3, where where the actual event happens, he tells us that in Luke chapter 7, in chapter 7 of his gospel, where he says from verse 29, and all the people heard, and the tax collectors deemed Yahweh to be just, being baptized in the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of Yahweh in regard to themselves not being baptized by him. So we see that these men were certainly not baptized by John. That's not why they went to see John. However, when they went to see John, and it's recorded in Luke chapter 3 and in Matthew chapter 3, when they went to see John, John challenged them to do good and to repent, even if, and they were, and he called them, a race of vipers. They were from a bad tree. John warned them that the axe was already laid to the root of the trees, meaning that if you were a bad tree, you were going to be torn up and cast into the fire. If you were a good tree, you wouldn't be hewn down, right? Well, where where does this leave the bad trees that want to become good? Well, well, right, they can't. They they were already judged. The wicked, John's telling them that the, the trees were, the axe was already laid to the root of the trees because the wicked were already judged. The wicked were judged by God from the beginning. They can't ever be righteous. From Matthew chapter 3, I'll read from verse 7. But seeing many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, race of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath is a statement which indicates that they have no chance to repent. Indeed, you should make fruit worthy of repentance and do not think to say among yourselves. John's challenging them to be good even though they can't. And they don't. And do not think to say among yourselves, we have Abraham for a father. For I say to you that Yahweh is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And that's, that, that passage is, already, is always looked at the wrong way by Judeo-Christians who say, oh, it doesn't matter if you're one of Abraham's children because God can raise up children of Abraham from stones. But children of Abraham raised from stones are no different than children of Abraham descended from Esau. They can't be heirs to the covenant because the covenant is only promised to the children of Abraham who descended from Jacob. So even though Yahweh can raise children of Abraham from stones, that doesn't make them heirs to the covenant. John's not saying that it does. But already the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Surely any tree not producing good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. This is a challenge for them to do good, to make yourselves fruits worthy of repentance, even though they can't do good. Therefore, Christ said to them in John chapter 8, if you were of Abraham, even though he recognized that they were descended from Abraham, they were ostensibly the descendants of Esau. And Christ said to them, if you were of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. And they don't. But John still challenged them to be good, just like Christ challenged the Pharisees and Sadducees to be good, even though they couldn't repent, just like Yahweh challenged Cain to be good. And he went and turned right around and killed his brother. We should not, as Christians, expect the Jews to be good. This is a lesson that we haven't learned because we simply won't identify these parties in the proper light. We shouldn't expect Negroes, Chinamen, the other races, mixed races, anything that's a violation of Yahweh's creation, we should never expect these people to be good. Now, sometimes they do good things, but they may well do them for bad reasons or, or, or for expectation of reward or, or for whatever motive. But generally, most of the time, most of those people do bad. And if they do good today, they're going to do bad tomorrow. They really only do good in our society, seeking the rewards of our society. If that's their motivation, then their motivation is based on greed. I mean, your dog will behave if you give it a bone. It's no different. The same manner, in the same manner, Paul challenged the Edomite. Paul knew he was an Edomite. Paul wrote about the Edomites in Romans chapter 9 before he ever got to Jerusalem, as I established last night in the Acts program. Paul knew that Herod was an Edomite. Everybody in Judea knew it, that the, Herod, the, the family of Herod were Edomites. Anybody that was learned, Paul better have known it. Well, Paul challenged the Edomite Herod Agrippa to do, to do well in, in Acts chapter 27. And, and I'm sorry, at the end of um, Acts chapter 26, and, and where Paul speaks from verse 27, he says, you do believe King Agrippa in the prophets. I know that you believe. Well, Agrippa being a public official 
and being the man who appointed the high priests, as it was arranged by the Romans, who had the, the authority over the temple, that was King Agrippa II, he had that authority, he couldn't deny the prophets. Paul had them on the spot. Paul had them on the spot, and Agrippa slithered his way out of it when he said, in brief, do you persuade me to be made a Christian? So Agrippa didn't answer the question. He answered like the typical serpent, and he slithered his way around the question. So quickly do you persuade me to be a Christian? That's what he said to him. Yet simply because evil men were challenged to do good, that doesn't mean they can do good. Of course they can't do good. Cain did evil because sin met him at the door. He was conceived in sin, and he could not avoid doing evil. It was his nature to do so. That's an important lesson that Christians don't understand because they don't understand their Bibles. If they even read them. Well, well, right. I mean, the Baptists and, and, and the Church of Christ and a lot of those people do read their Bibles. Catholics never read their Bibles. Not that I've ever seen. So it, it, it depends. But it, it don't really matter if you're reading the, the Bible through the lens of these um, universalist Judeo-Christian preachers. I, I mean, they pervert everything. They, they don't believe that seed is seed. They don't believe that offspring are offspring, that, that they want to twist. Uh, I mean, it's a Judaism for the masses. Matthew seven sixteen. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns? Well, of course not. Or figs of thistles? Of course not. Even so, every good tree bringing forth good fruit but a corrupt tree, every good tree bringeth forth. Every good tree brings forth good fruit. There's, yeah, sure, there's some individuals that screw up, but their fruit, that the people are good people. We all screw up. But a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into fire. If you're a bastard, you can't produce good offspring. You can't produce good fruit. You can't be a good fruit. You're corrupt. Let's repeat verse 4, 7 and, and speak about another aspect of it. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And, and the part we're going to talk about is this last part. And unto thee shall be his desire, that's how the King James has it, and thou shalt rule over him. Now, now there's a lot of um, debate over how this should be read in in. in well, mainstream commentaries and, and circles and, and mainstream religious academia. So whose desire? Uh, I'm curious here as to whose desire? Is he referring to the desire of the serpent? Well, well you know, this is Cain, right? And Abel's sacrifice was just accepted, and that's and Cain's was rejected, and that's why Cain is upset. Right. 
that's what's being portrayed here, right? Hebrew, the Hebrew language does not have neuter pronouns. It only has masculine or feminine pronouns. The Greek language has pronouns for all three genders, and, and neuter is a grammatical gender, but it surely is not a human gender, right? Uh, I don't want anybody to think that I'm, I'm professing that. Greek has masculine, feminine, and neuter pronouns. However, in Greek, in many cases, the masculine and the neuter have the same form, so they're hard to tell apart, right? Especially in the genitive and dative cases, and that is also the case here in Genesis 4-7 in the Septuagint. You can't really tell if the Hebrew interpreters interpreted the pronouns as masculine or as neuter because they have the same form. Most, but not all, of the modern interpreters would insist, and, and you could check any website that has Bible versions on it and see this, most of the Bible versions have these pronouns interpreted in the neuter gender using the word it instead of him, right? And they would insist that the sin is the subject of the, second, of, of the last clause in this verse. The sin is the subject, and unto thee shall be its desire, meaning the sin, and thou shalt rule over it, meaning the sin, the sin which lieth at the door, right? And that's the way this is being interpreted in most Christian circles today. The NAS, the, the New American Standard Edition, interprets the last part of this verse, and if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Well, which I, I can't agree with, right? It, it opens up some philosophical questions. Is sin something to desire, if that is being inferred? And if not, can sin itself have desire? The text infers that the desire belongs to the pronoun especially in the Septuagint Greek, right? The desire belongs to the sin. Or if we interpret this as the masculine pronoun, then it has to be referring back to Abel, and the desire belongs to Abel. Sin is a concept, and sin can't desire to do anything on its own. And Another philosophical question, is sin to be ruled over or mastered? Sin is a concept which only exists within the bounds of law, right? So, so how, well, without law, how can sin be mastered? And even with law, how can sin be mastered? Yet you may master Cain. obedience. Cain is not, not under the law. Well, well, Cain's never been under the law, right? The Septuagint Greek, very Cain was born outside the bounds of the law. He can't be under the law, right? The Septuagint Greek very literally says, and, and this is my translation of the Greek, to you is his resort. The word is apostrophe, and it means a turning, a resource, or a resort. So to you is his turning, or resource, or resort, however you want to translate apostrophe, apo, 
it's the same Greek word we get the English word apostrophe from. It's a turning, the little mark that turns, right? Apostrophe would be the way I pronounce it in Greek. To you is his resort, and of him you shall govern or lead. And, and that's what the Greek word means. The, the Greek verb arco is to rule over, to govern, or to lead, or to begin. I would rather view the statements in this verse in much the same way that is inferred from the circumstances of the birth of Christ. While Yahshua Christ was born of God, his earthly father, Joseph, was told to accept the pregnant woman as his wife. And therefore, Joseph accepted the child as if it were his own. That made, Christ, that made the Christ child, who was the Messiah born of God, to be also the, heir, the, the heir of the estate of, to that which belonged to Joseph who was the rightful inheritor of the throne of David, even though for other reasons he didn't possess that throne, right? For, for political reasons and, and, and to do with the history of Judea. When Adam accepted Eve and her sin, Adam accepted Cain, just like Joseph accepted Mary, the pregnant Mary, the Mary impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and, and so Christ was his legal son, even though he wasn't his natural son. When Adam accepted even her sin, Adam accepted Cain as his own along with his wife, therefore the adversary of Christ, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 4, and I'll quote from the middle of verse 5, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, or I desire, I will give it. And Christ doesn't dispute this, that the devil does indeed have all these kingdoms, well, well, right. Christ doesn't dispute it. How did the devil, how did the adversary, I don't necessarily see this, that this is a spiritual devil come down from heaven. <coughs> I really have a very pragmatic view of this passage and believe that this adversary it is a person and, and claims to have rule over all these kingdoms, and Christ agrees. But they have to be some sort of powerful figure that take him up to a mountain and show him all the kingdoms of the world at one moment in time. Well, right, but the text doesn't insist that it's a supernatural event. Right. The text does not insist on that. I, I mean, people might insist that the text be interpreted in that manner, but the text itself does not demand that it's interpreted in that manner. And, and I understand, and and... and I, I understand the facets of, of both points of view, and I would rather see it pragmatically. That, that's my choice, right? And I wouldn't beat anybody over the head if they thought that this Diabolos was a demon with, with some sort of supernatural. I mean, there are demons, and, and I'm not going to deny the existence of demons or spiritual devils. They certainly aren't they aren't in heaven because the devil was cast out of heaven, but I'm not going to deny their existence. They're outside of my own experience. However, I see the verse pragmatically and, and, and believe that it was a person 
who is claiming to 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 um have control of these things. Now as you pointed out, Christ never disputed the claim. The claim must have been true. Christ not challenging the devil in his claim to be in control of the kingdoms of this world only rebuked him concerning the worship of entities other than God. For that same reason we see in the Revelation that when the seventh trumpet sounds, that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Right, and you know, not to get petty here, but th this has to be some sort of Jew, because who other than a Jew would try and offer you something that is already yours or is going to be yours? So it's an adversarial tempter offering Christ something that, in the end, it's his anyway. Well, well that's the, 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 the whole nature of the false accuser, right? Uh, I mean, it's rebellion against God, and it's, it's a, um, a, a desire of fleshly, uh, I'll call them men, just for the sake of argument, it's a desire of fleshly men to form the creation of God in their own image. <clears throat> and that's the nature of the rebellion against God. And those same people still insist on doing that same thing today. They've been doing that same thing, bastardizing the creation of God ever since the original rebellion of the so-called fallen angels. And, and that's the entire insistence of God in the Bible is to keep his creation pure as he created it and, and not to bastardize it. And much of the law, it is aimed at that very goal to, to, um, to keep the creation of God as he created it, not to sleep with beasts, not to mix seeds, not to mingle your blood so, so that's how I see this verse, and that's why I prefer the King James reading, that it's referring back to Abel and not to sin, and that unto thee shall be his turning. I, I don't know if desire is a good way to, um, to portray that Hebrew word, Oh, it, it, it could be a longing. It, it could be, there's no doubt. And thou shalt rule over him. And that's simply the natural result of Adam's transgression. That's all it is. It's the natural result of Adam's transgression and his acceptance of Eve and, and in the long run, of Cain. Because well, Cain is really Adam's son. And in a sense, you know, the Jews basically rule over us today, don't they? They're the panderers, the purveyors, the promoters of filth and degeneracy. And they always have been. And, and that's why I'm convinced that this is the proper way to look at this passage because of that, because that has been the case since the dawn of time. That has been the case since the dawn of our history. that we have chased after all of the, 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 the vices and, and the entertainments and, and the pornography and things like that, that that have been offered to us by the devil, who was who basically, and, and I'm speaking collectively of the entire race, who was basically the, the world's oldest panderer.
he pandered to Eve. He, he pandered to Eve and, 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 and played on her lust in, in, right in Genesis chapter 3. That's how they operate as, as a group. That's how they've always operated. And, and we have given into that and, and, and pursued that ever since the dawn of time. There's no doubt. So that's how I uh, that, that's how I see these verses. It it can't really be proven one way or the other. But even even if we interpret them in a mainstream manner and interpret the um, the pronouns to be pronouns of the neuter gender, and therefore they would be referring to the sin. Even though it's difficult to wrap your mind around philosophically, unto thee shall be the desire of the sin, and thou shalt master the sin. Well, the Jew has been, or, or, or the, the, this Canaanite, Kenite race, and which the Jews are only a part of, that they have been the purveyors of the world's sin. And, and lured our people into it time and time again for 7,000 years. So either way, it really works. And, and I don't think we have to have, have a, um, a decision for something that we can't prove. We can't dictate that it has to be one way or another. However, interpreting the passage in the traditional way that the King James Version interpreted it also fits with what we see in Luke chapter 4 and is made sense of in that manner. So that, that's why I would rather interpret the passage in the traditional manner. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And Yahweh said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. Well, and that's says 4, verses 8 through 12. The first thing God tells him is basically to do well or try to do well. And, you know, poses the idea, will you not then be accepted? So the first thing Cain does is he goes off, murders his brother, and then he lies to God about it. Right. He can't, he can't, he's a bastard. He can't do well. Yeah, you know, the, um, well, well, first we, we see the enmity of the woman and the seed of the serpent manifests the, 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 the enmity between the seed of the woman. Abel is the seed of the woman. He's the seed of the woman because... Being the son of Adam, he's flesh of her flesh and bone of his bone, where Cain is a bastard. And really of the seed of the serpent, which represents corruption and, and race mixing. 
And that enmity between the two manifests itself here immediately for the first time. There's a... um, there's an old Greek adage which is found in the writings of Euripides. It's in the play called Hippolytus, and it's from lines 962 and 963, where it says in part, very briefly, that the bastard is always an enemy to the true-born. And that's an old Greek adage, and it may be compared to Galatians 4.29 and other scriptures. In Galatians 4.29, Paul said... But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him who was born after the spirit, even so it is now. And Paul was talking at that time about Ishmael and Isaac. However, the analogy is just as true in reference to Cain and Abel, and even more so. And it's just as true today. It's just as true today in relations between whites and Jews, and whites and Arabs, and, and whites and, and all the other races. Well, you know, we see this seed enmity. Let's look at Russia in 1919. What did the Jews do when they had physical control and, and military power over 150 million white people? They killed 20 million of them. If, if not more. Right. Over time. If there are any white people left, there, there probably aren't many truly white people compared to the 150 or 160 million that were originally there. They flooded them with aliens. They raped their women. That they've done it for that they did it for 50 years. Cain. Cain attempted to usurp the Melchizedek priesthood, and we asserted that last week. And Abel attempted to stop him making his own sacrifice to God, asserting his own natural rights to that priesthood. Therefore, speaking of Christ, who Paul declares in the early chapters of the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul declares Christ to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and Paul was quoting the Psalms of David. Paul also says this from Hebrews chapter 12, from verse 23, and I quote, To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, I'm quoting the King James, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. This is a very telling passage. The original church of the firstborn was the Melchizedek priesthood of the patriarchs handed down through Seth to Noah, the eighth preacher of righteousness, and on down the line from him until the time of Abraham. Now, Bill, do you believe this priesthood has continued in our day? No, because Abraham's brother died without issue, and the covenant with Abraham was made to replace it. All right. This Melchizedek priesthood, this original church of the firstborn, was handed down through Seth and not through Cain. 
And now it is found in Christ. And Abel's testimony given through his sacrifice was that it was rightfully his and did not belong to Cain. And Yahweh God agreed. He agreed by accepting Abel's offering and rejecting Cain's. And Bill, the reason I asked is because there are some Mormons running around calling themselves, you know, part of the, they call themselves Melchizedek priests or part of the holy priesthood. There's nothing that supports that in Scripture except that they made up their own book, basically. Right, so there's no no basis. There's no uninterrupted line that they can trace their lineage to. Absolutely not. The body of Christ was addressed by Paul as the church of the firstborn in Hebrews chapter 12 because Christ is the true Melchizedek priest. That church of the firstborn here is connected to the testimony of Abel which substantiates everything that we said, everything that Clifton wrote in, in his battle for the priesthood paper, and everything that we said in, in podcasts and, and in these presentations in relation to that. And that was Hebrews chapter 12. Do you want to read um, Genesis 4 from 13 through 16, right. perhaps? And Cain said unto Yahweh, My punishment is greater than I can bear. So already, God told him to do well. He murders his brother within, I, I don't know, presumably this is in the immediate aftermath of being told to do well. Maybe it's an hour, maybe it's days, maybe it's weeks, but he's been told to do well. He murders his brother, then he lies to God about it, and now he's complaining that he can't bear this punishment. Crocodile tears, this typical whining Jew. Right, even, even though his, his life has been spared, when typically the penalty for murder is your life is forfeit. And Cain said unto Yahweh, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And I have another an aside here. Who do the evangelicals explain that Cain is worried about slaying him? If it's just Adam, Eve, Abel's now dead, and then Cain, who's going to see Cain and then want to kill him? There must be other humanoids out there. Well, well, this is the whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. And Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh. Oh, I jumped over 15. Sorry. And Yahweh said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out of the presence of Yahweh and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And, and Nod, is a, Nod is a Hebrew word that means um, wandering. I, I don't. It, it's you want to dwell on the um, on the mark of Cain. That that can only be conjectured. Uh, right. I don't. You know, a lot of a lot of identity Christians like to say, oh, that's the big Jewish hook nose, but, but that's just conjecture. 
it, it it's um, I, I believe that the big Jewish hook nose is a result of race mixing, and and the Hittite and and proto Neanderthal or or whatever blood you want to imagine that they they contain because they that they well that tree of the knowledge of good and evil mixed itself with every kind, but not all not all of the line of, of Cain have that have that big hooked nose. So I, I can't count that. I think that's child that that's a childish view of, of what the mark of Cain is. I really think that the mark of Cain applied only to Cain himself and, and not to his descendants. Uh, otherwise anybody that killed a, a, a Jew or a Kenite or, or or one of the enemies of God would bear the curse of, of being um punished sevenfold for it. And not all Jews have the hideous hook nose. Well, well, right. That's what I said. So, so I think this mark of Cain, whatever it was, was peculiar to Cain and ended with Cain. Now, I know um, in the um, Cain satanic seed line, Comparey advanced the idea that it was a hideous hook nose. Yeah, yes, he did. But, but if that's the case, that then... All of Cain's descendants that bore it would bear the protection that that it bore, and 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 I don't see that right. Additionally, well, I was going to say that at least it's a step or so above what the Mormons teach. You know, the Mormons teach Cain was turned black. What, which is absurd, right? I mean, what we had niggers long before we had Cain. I think that um, whoever Cain's father was, I mean, Cain's father, I don't see Cain's father as, as necessarily the satanic leader of the rebellion of the angels against God. I see Cain's father simply that serpent as one of those, or, or perhaps one of the fruits of, of those rebels against God. It, it doesn't matter what we want to, what, what we want to think of that. However, that the um, it doesn't matter because we can't prove it. We simply know that it's a satanic a satanic entity that seduced Eve. However, the um, but well now I got myself off track. Right, I, I apologize. Verse seventeen. Yeah, yeah, I I, I lost my thought because I I took too many diversions, uh, and that is what. Did I apologize? That the whatever we want to think about who's who Cain's father was, Cain was a bastard. Right. Now Cain's father wasn't necessarily a Negro, even though the fallen angels are bound in chains of darkness. And we believe that that means that these dark races originated with the fallen angels. And, and, and Jude, as I demonstrated in the third segment of this, of, of this series of presentations, the apostle Jude and the language in Jude would insist upon that. Now, that, that, that's what would insist that that viewpoint is, is correct. That's besides the point yeah, you know when when you have a, a group that mixes their race with every kind and and engages in all sorts of race mixing, 
yet you you have a you usually end up after a couple of generations with a group of very diverse individuals. We can't say exactly what Cain's nature was, but the Kenites and the Canaanites later on, and the Rephaim, even though they were markedly different from Adamic man, they were still enough alike to Adamic man to be accepted by many of the Adamic nations later on in history. And and they couldn't have been so alien-looking as not to be able to blend in to some degree. Especially as race mixing. When, well, when race mixing at the fringes of a society, when it occurs, the um, it, it's easier for people to pass as white, right? Right. Well, if cares can't convincingly appear to be wheat, then it'd be easy for us to separate them, and we wouldn't have to wait until the end. Right. So part of being a tear, tears are indistinguishable from wheat. Right. And every attempt our people have made to handle that separation has failed. Absolutely. Because the Word of God says that he will do it. 17? Yes. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and she bare Enoch, and he builded a city and called the name of the city after his son Enoch. Now, I assume we need to put a break point here and discuss Cain's wife? Well, well, there must have been other people on the earth. There was an entire um, tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Cain could have chosen a wife from. That there were many other races here on the earth before the Adamic race. That there were other white races here on the earth, and 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 we should look at them as fallen angels. That's how. That's exactly how we should look at pre-Adamic whites. Oh, Adam couldn't have been made in 7500 BC because there were white people here before that. Well, yeah, they were fallen angels. It's real simple. That's what the Scripture teaches us. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's the way we should always look at that. And it's real simple. Now, there, there were many races. <clears throat> there were evidently many races available for Cain to have chosen a wife from. We'll, we'll see some of those races appear later in Scripture. <laughs> there are people that appear in um, Genesis chapter 15 that have absolutely no um, genealogy with Adam in Genesis 10. Where did they come from? They didn't just materialize out of nowhere. No, they didn't. And we'll discuss that down the road. But they're tribes of people. They're tribes of the nations of Canaan. And they have no... They're not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. Who are they? So so there's... Um, aside from the nations of Genesis 10 and and the kenites that there's a lot of branches to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil what which which we're not told about in scripture but scripture explicitly tells us that there's only one good tree and that's the tree of life and that's the tree which Yahweh planted that's our race Christ tells us he's the he's the vine and we are the branches and that's that's all we need to know that's all we need to know. Scripture tells us explicitly all we need to know is to stay with our own race and reject all these other races. 
I don't. That's real simple, and I don't know why Christians can't get it. That they always have to squeeze niggers and chinks into Genesis, as if to legitimize or or Latin American squat monsters or Bushmen or Eskimos, as if to legitimize their existence and legitimize bringing them into the sheepfold. They try to squeeze them into Genesis, and they're not mentioned in Genesis. And they can't be legitimized in Scripture. You, you might, I said this in the opening segments of the series. You might try like hell to squeeze a nigger into Genesis. There's no way you're going to squeeze a nigger into Revelation chapter 21. Yahshua Christ, your God, is not going to stand for that. I'm sorry. Go on. And unto Enoch was born Irod, and Irod begat Mahujal, and Mahujal begat Methuselah, and Methuselah begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The one was named Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And Ada bare Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all as such handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, Seventy and sevenfold. There are apocryphal stories. I don't know if I should accept them or not. And generally, I don't accept the Book of Jasher. I mean, I believe that it does have a core of truth. It is also rife with embellishments on Scripture. And some of them are quite ridiculous, especially in the chapters concerning the patriarchs and the closing chapters of the Book of Jasher. There's some that there, there are some anachronisms in history which are way beyond belief. Well, well um, in some of the apocryphal literature, and I'm pretty sure the Book of Jasher is one of, one of those um, stories where Lamech was said to have been the one that killed Cain. And, and I don't know if that's an embellishment because of what we read here in Genesis, or, or, or if what we read here in Genesis is actually reflecting that idea, it, it's a toss-up, right? But Lamech, Cain's own descendant, it is said to be the one to kill Cain. Well, we'll never substantiate it, but it, it should be mentioned. But Lamech declaring that if any, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. That's in the Bible. It's in Genesis, but those aren't the words of God. These are the words of Lamech. Right. They are the words of Lamech, and and, and they don't count as the the words of men in Scripture are not are are not doctrine. I mean, we can formulate doctrine around them. Cain asks him, "Am I my brother's keeper?" Well, we should deduct from that that we being good seed and good fruit ought to be our brother's keeper, right? Uh, I mean, that's what we get the op. We should, as good Christians, get the opposite from Cain's words, knowing that Cain is an evil bastard. Well, well these are the words of Lamech. You're right. They're not, the, they're not scripture. They're not the words of God. 
it, it's um, I bring up the apocryphal literature to try to account for why they're there, but I don't know if I necess- necessarily accept that story, and and I and and I would really reject the canonicity of it. So so that's that, there's no doubt, but um, whether there's any truth to the matter, it it really can't be told. But Lamech was said in, in the Jasher literature, I believe that it was said that he was the killer of Cain. So perhaps that's why he makes this expression, but he doesn't have this guarantee. Cain had a guarantee that he would be avenged sevenfold from God himself. This guy's just making crap up as he goes along, basically. It seems to me to be like typical Jewish self-promotion. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to profess to know something that we can't know. That there are things that we should know, and there are things that we can know, and simply haven't done a reading. And there's some things that we can't know, and, and I don't. You know, we might dig a book out of the ground in a hundred years that 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 um is proven to be of great antiquity, and it explains this story. I'm not saying that that won't happen, but from the books we have, unless we want to believe the Book of Jasher, well, we can't know why Lamech said these things, right? All right. But Lamech is um, history's second recorded murderer, I guess. Uh, well, he's, 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 he's confessing to a murder. Isn't he? Well, basically, if, if we have an Adamic man there, I, I don't know. You know, how do you want to define murder? That's another story. But he seems to be the second murderer in Scripture. Right. He, he's taken somebody's life. And he's he's admitting it to his wives, and he's basically saying, if anyone comes after me, then I'll be avenged seventy and sevenfold. But he's not God, and he can't make that pronouncement. I mean, he, I, I guess he can make the statement, but it has no weight. Right. Absolutely. But if you want to build a, a doctrine based on the words of you know Canaanites and Edomites and the Syrian kings and Canaanite women at the well, we could you know the gospel according to Lamech. Right. There's other things that can be supposition because Lamech says these things to his wives. Perhaps he expects them to have retribution against him. Perhaps he killed one of their kin. Uh, and that's all. It's all conjectural, right? I'm not going to try to conjecture. The, the word can I? The word can I became that these things we can know, right? The word can I became synonymous with the occupation of a smith or a metal worker later in the Hebrew language. And we see that here in Genesis 4, that these people must have been working in metals and smiths right from the beginning because of the things that they, that they are doing here and, and um, the, the occupations that they've taken up. And, and it's explicitly said that Tubal Cain was an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, right? The word Kenite was later used to describe a smith but it was also the name of a tribe of people, the descendants of Cain, and they're mentioned throughout Scripture. We know that those people called Kenites are the descendants of Cain later in Scripture because of the words of Christ in John chapter 8 and Luke chapter 11, which certainly do establish that the race of Cain 
which can be the only race responsible for the blood of Abel, is still extant in Palestine at his time. So the word Kenite can mean a smith, and there's a couple of places in Genesis where I'm persuaded that it should have been translated smith. We have um, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. He's called in one place uh, a, a, um, a, a man of Cush, which happens to be the geographical region and, and the tribe of Cush ruled over it. And that's why Moses went to the land of Cush where he met Jethro's daughter and married her. Well, well um, Zilpar, I think her name was. Well, well we, we, we have um, Jethro is called a Midianite and Midianites were descendants of Abraham and that was his race. He was of the race of Midian, the tribe of Midian, and Jethro was also in one place in Scripture called a Kenite. Perhaps he should have been called a smith because he wasn't a Kenite by race. He was a Midianite, and he wasn't a Kenite by citizenship. He lived within the bounds of the empire of Cush. So that, that's one example where Kenite should probably have been called smith. Now, now Jethro was also a priest of Midian, but that doesn't mean that he can't be a smith also. Now, now, the Kenite word became smith, but the Kenites were certainly also a tribe, even though the word was used to, to describe smiths in, and, and metal workers in Hebrew in later times. It's important to make that identification and that distinguishment so that we don't get confused in later scripture. Well, suffice to say, Tubal-Cain is not a nice person. I'm wondering then, why is his name used as a Masonic password? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to try to speak for Masons. I've never been involved in Masonry. I'm sorry. Uh, I haven't been. There, there are some apocryphal stories associated with Tubal-Cain also, which I, I, I don't have enough of a command to repeat. All right. Suffice to say, though, Tubal-Cain is a bastard coming from a long line of bastards. Well, well right. I, I mean, this is the race of Cain. And, and this is here for a reason. This is here so that we could see that Cain had descendants, that the, the, the serpent had literal seed. Now, now, I don't confine the seed of the serpent to the race of Cain. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't. The, the serpent had a literal seed from Eve, and it's important to understand that because that literal seed has always been the, the hot point, the hot point of, of the attacks, the flashpoint of all of the attacks of the enemies of God on the Adamic race. However, the seed of the serpent, if you have a brother, he's your seed, right? And if you have cousins, they're your seed, as long as they're still of your race, even though they're not your descendants, they're still your seed. And I see the seed of the serpent as being basically the entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That they're all related. They all fell, the same angels fell and went out and mixed their seed with every kind. They're all bastards, but they're all related. And and, and that's why when we get to to the book of Revelation and all through the prophets, there's really only two groups of people, sheep and goats. 
You might say, well, what about this race, and what about that race, and what about that race? There's really only two groups of people in the eyes of Yahweh our God, good fish and bad fish. There's really only wheat and tares. There's really only sons and bastards. And, and that's the New Testament all the way through the New Testament. And, and that's also in agreement with all the words of the prophets. So that's how we should see the other races. Well, um, would you like me to argue against that and say that there have to be good bastards and you're just an evil, mean hater? Well, well, yeah, right. I'm just an exterminationist, I guess. But Yahweh's an exterminationist. Well, you're either a wheat or a tear. Right. I'm not going to make apologies for goats, tares, and bastards. It's well, not you know, ha- the wheat is gathered and kept safe in the barn. The tares, they're not... They're not going to be sold at a discount. They're they're not going to be gathered and put away just in case you know you run out of wheat. The tares are thrown into the furnace. No doubt. All right, verse twenty-five. Be my guest. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth, for God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then began men to call upon the name of Yahweh. And that's a terrible, that's a terrible translation. That this, I know Christian identity people love this verse, and, and Wesley Swift used to make a lot out of it in Compare, but this verse where it says, then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh, of the Lord, it's terrible. But first, let, let's note that Seth was a replacement for Abel, and he was not a replacement for Cain. So Cain wasn't simply rejected because he killed his brother, that he didn't have the birthright. Seth replaced Abel. If Abel didn't have the birthright, then Seth wouldn't have had it. Seth replaced Abel, and all of Cain's descendants are discounted. Why would Cain's children and grandchildren be excluded if Cain was simply a son of Adam who sinned? And none of that is the case. Cain isn't Adam's son. Cain doesn't deserve the birthright, as he didn't deserve the the, the priesthood. Whether he, whether his descendants have ruled the world since this time or not. Well, that doesn't mean they're worthy of it, and that's why, in the end, Yahshua Christ has it, and he becomes the 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 the, the possessor of the nations. If the evangelical types believe that every man is judged only for his own actions, then why are all of Cain's descendants cursed? Do they have an answer for that? Do they even attempt to address that, or do they just say they're spiritually evil? I don't know that 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 they wriggle their way out of everything by by repeating words that don't mean what they say. So if, if their words don't mean what they say, that then how how do you debate with them? Right. I mean, will Satan be judged by his works? Absolutely not. God's enemies can't do good. The bad tree can't produce good fruit, so they're not going to be judged by their works. That they've been judged by their nature.
that they've been judged by, by what they are. This verse where, where it says that men began to call upon the name of the Lord in the King James Version, the word men is not in Hebrew. It's not at all in the Hebrew. It's an innovation of the translators. And there's another Hebrew word in this passage which is not represented in the English of the Bible versions that I checked, and that word is not listed in Strong's Concordance, but it is in the Hebrew of this passage. In Holiday's Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, it's number 2568. I won't attempt to pronounce it. It's simply spelled from right to left, Aleph, Lamed, Lamed. And it apparently seems, it, it apparently means to use something commonly or profanely. And apparently the meaning here in this verse, in this last passage, where it says, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord in the King James, the real meaning is that Seth, or perhaps Enos, whoever this is referring to, right, Seth commonly began to call upon the name of Yahweh at this time. It's not men who are calling upon the name of Yahweh. It's one particular individual, and the pronoun that should be there, then he commonly called upon the name of Yahweh. That pronoun could refer to Seth or it could refer to Enos, but it, it doesn't refer to men in general. The word men does not exist in the passage. Even though the King James does not have it in italics, there's no Hebrew word for men in this passage. And it's a very poor translation. I just thought I would mention that. And we discussed before the program, where does Seth's wife come from? You know, when we get to that point where, you know, Seth knows his wife, well, takes a wife, then knows his wife. And we both agreed it ultimately doesn't matter because she was acceptable to God. Well, well right. It, it's um, There's a few things that can't be, that, that cannot be answered through Scripture and we, we have always attempted to conjecture those things. And we can't really conjecture those things. Who did Seth marry? Did he marry his sister? Oh, the law says you can't marry your sister. Well, well the law given 3,500 years later or 4,000 years later, I'm sorry, the Levitical law came 4,000 years later according to the Septuagint chronology. The Levitical law says you can't marry your sister. That law was given to Israel 4,000 years later. Now, Adam married Eve and had babies with her, right? I, I mean, that's the point of marriage. That is marriage. That they, they had many sons and daughters, the scripture says. Now, Eve was created from Adam's rib. Eve was created from Adam's exact same genetic material is how I read that. I, I think the rib thing might may be an allegory, right? But, well, Eve was flesh of Adam's flesh and bone of his bone. You can't get closer than that in relationship. 
and their children were accepted by God. Now, Seth, no matter how Yahweh provided a wife for Seth, we have to understand that first, we can't know with any certainty who Seth married, but we can know this with certainty, that who Seth married must have been flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, because that is the biblical standard for an appropriate wife. And nothing else is appropriate. Seth could not have taken a wife from another, from another race of people. Because right, that wouldn't have been flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. That wife would not have been legitimate. We have right. to understand that whoever Seth married was legitimate, legitimate in the eyes of God because Seth's children were accepted by God and because Noah, when we get down the line a few generations, Noah was perfect in his descent. If Noah was perfect in his descent and all the people around Noah were race mixing with, with the with the Kenites and, and whoever they were race mixing with, the, the, the angels. It's the, and we'll, well, we will get to that in Genesis chapter 6 next week. Noah, out of all of those people, was perfect in his descent, and he and his family were therefore preserved as a remnant while all the others were destroyed. Would you like to hear what the Talmud says about the source of Cain's wife. It, it, I mean, it's a might be a point of fascination, but I, all right. I so um, maybe, maybe children and women should leave the room. Sanhedrin 58b. Come in here. Why did not Adam marry his daughter, so that Cain should marry his sister? As it is written, for I said the world shall be built up by grace, and they cite the 89th Psalm for that. But otherwise, she would have been forbidden to Cain. Once, however, that it was permitted, it remained so. Rabbi Huna said, A heathen may marry his daughter. But should you ask, if so, why did not Adam marry his daughter? In order that Cain might marry his sister, that the world might be built up by grace. Others give this version. Rabbi Huna said, A heathen may not marry his daughter. The proof being that Adam did not marry his daughter, but that proof is fallacious. The reason was that Cain should marry his sister, so that the world should be built up by Adam's grace. Rabbi Hizda said, A heathen slave owned by a Jew may marry his daughter and his mother, for he has lost the status of a heathen, but has not yet attained that of a Jew. And then they go on to talk about other forbidden and prohibited and permitted marriages. And they, so, you know, so, that means, so that means that a Jew could marry his mother and his daughter and his sister and... No, because when Rabbi Demi came, he said in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, in the name of Rabbi Hanina, that a heathen who allotted a bondwoman to his slave for concubinage and then took her for himself is executed on her account. And that a Jew cannot marry his mother or his sister because he's under the law. Wow. Okay. Thank you. So yeah. did, that clear, did that clarify anything or... or I'm glad that we're not Jews. <laughs> the, the um, you know, there's apocryphal literature that's rather late. The the books, the the books of Adam and Eve, and and things like that. That I can't 
For many reasons, I reject as canonical, and those books insist that Abel and Cain, or Seth and Cain, and, and Abel, that they all married their sisters, right? And, and that's the easy conjecture. I'm not going to conjecture at all who Seth married, except that Seth must have had children with a woman who was accepted by God. Kind that's after all, kind. That's all we need to know. The laws of God are kind after kind, and, and, and that your wife must be flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone, as we see in Genesis chapter 2. And Adam explains that. Adam is shown all of the beasts of Yahweh's creation, and none of them are suitable for a wife. And, and, and the lesson there is that the fallen angels had gone out and mixed their seed with every kind, as we read in the Enoch literature, and Adam was shown to know better. And, and that's the lesson that we should receive from that. And, and Seth's wife, therefore, and Enos's wife, and the wives of all the patriarchs, even though they're not mentioned, had to be acceptable to Yahweh, our God, because otherwise... Noah could not have been perfect in his generations. He could not have been perfect in his descent. And that's all we need to know. And we probably shouldn't conjecture, th conjecture things that we can't prove one way or another. Because when we do so, that's what leads to infighting and arguments. That, that's the... Um, the, the biggest challenge that we have as Christians is that Christians should learn to distinguish between the things that they must believe, which are the things that the Scripture insists, the things that the Scripture tells them explicitly, and the things that they may suppose and not beat each other over the head with the later, what, which, is in my, what, which is, in my opinion, why a pragmatic or practical view of Genesis is necessary in the first place. But in order to have a practical view of Genesis, one must believe the word of God. That if it says Noah was perfect in his descent, then Seth and all the men between Seth and Noah had wives under the terms acceptable to Yahweh, which means that there was no race mixing involved, and that even if they married, even if Seth married his sister, that that was acceptable to Yahweh. And, and if Seth married his sister, that's not as close, or, or that, that, that really can't be called any closer a relationship to the relationship which Adam had to Eve. It's that simple. So we shouldn't conjecture, and I'm not attempting to. There's other things that people love to conjecture, and, and you mentioned some of these earlier in our conversation, and, and we already discussed where the angels fell from, and, and that really doesn't matter who Cain married. And, and we see there was an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Cain could have had many of them for wives. It doesn't matter. Right, they're all bastards. They're all bastards. If, if they're not Adamic, then they're goats. It's, that's and that whole tree is going into the furnace. Right, the entire tree is going into the furnace. That there's um, 
other things which we'll see we may be conjectured in in Genesis chapter 6. I mean, where did the angels come down from to go into the daughters of man? And people want to make up stories about UFOs. I'll tell you something. that There's some real clowns that call themselves Christian identity. that They're really – it's pretty bad. There was this guy named um, Noah Fredericks. And back when I was in prison, Noah Fredericks had sent me all of his tapes, or, or at least somebody had, had asked him to do that. I, I don't know. Well, well, I couldn't get tapes, and they were refused, and I never got the tapes, and he didn't have any printed material. So I did without Noah Fredericks. And, and later on, when I learned about more about him, I'm kind of glad, because Noah, Noah Fredericks was the expositor of this idea that Noah, the patriarch, and the ark were really, Noah was a a pilot, the ark was a UFO, right? And he came from another planet with the DNA in in little test tubes or vials or whatever uh, of two of every creature to earth. And, And there are people in Christian identity that profess to be Christian identity, they're really just clowns. And they are clowns who insist that we believe these things today. That that Noah was he, he came here on a UFO from another planet with two of every creature and in their DNA and, and kinda made um made the animals from them after um That's the beyond pathetic. Or, oh yeah, it's pathetic, but it, it it's representative of some of the harebrained ideas that people come up with once they go outside the bounds of the revelation which we have from God and, and try to write their own Bibles to fill in some of the blanks. And, and that's why we shouldn't conjecture. That's why we should be happy to, to, to understand that whoever Seth married was acceptable to God or, or Noah couldn't have been perfect in his generations, and our race wouldn't exist today, and there would be no promises from God, because God only cares for the things that he created. That's why the Apostle John says in, in 1 John chapter 4 that there are people born from above, they're the children of God, and there are people born of the world, and they're the bastards which are created in opposition to God. So, so that, that's what we have to understand. There are certain things as Christians which we should stand by and, and we wouldn't be pulled off into all these disputes about whether some half-Mexican squat monster is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. We should know better. We should certainly know better. So so if we stuck to the scripture that we had and didn't allow the the conjecturers to invent deceptions and and lure us away with them, we'd be in a lot better shape as identity Christians. We'd be in much better shape as Christians in, in general. We will be here um next week with Genesis chapter 6. We might want to do a re... I don't think there's much that we need to say about Genesis chapter 5 and and the descendants of um, 
the descendants of Seth. It, it's pretty cut and dry down in Noah, right? Right, but we do need to focus a lot, of course, on the Rephaim. Well, yes, we we will, and, and we'll be talking about that next week. The the um the Rephaim, the angels that that mixed with the sons of men in in Genesis chapter six, and the reasons for the flood of Noah. Thank you for joining me. I will be here Friday with Acts chapter twenty-one. Yahweh willing. Praise Yahweh. Praise Good night. Yahweh. Thank you. Listen.